The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Good morning. I hope you're all doing well. Let's begin in prayer. Father, Heavenly Father, Gracious Father, Merciful Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. All right. All right. Well, um, if you guys were with us this, for you who were with us this summer, we went through Ruth. I mentioned uh, that Western Christians uh, are often, um, we give short shrift to the Old Testament a lot of times. Um, That we're pretty... um, biblically illiterate when it comes to the Old Testament. Uh, We have one or two verses that we may know and memorize, and in general, we have a handful of stories that we've heard along the way um, when we were children or just along the way in our journey. Um, But for the most part, when it comes to the Old Testament, I believe that us Western Christians uh, have a little more work to do. And in large part, we are a New Testament people. And I know that hearing that we're a New Testament people sounds good. But in this context, it's not. And we're going to explore why that may be the case. Um, sometimes uh, I, I let people know that I, I have, as you probably know, I have a master's degree in Old Testament. And occasionally... I'll get a loving and kind of pitiful, oh, bless your heart. <laughs> and even more than once, I've, I've gotten, oh, why would you do that? In church. I, I, I've, I've mentioned that I have a master's degree in Old Testament, and I've gotten, why, oh, why, why'd you do that? Um, which is interesting, you know. I think the, the, the Old Testament, just calling it the Old Testament, sometimes like psychologically in our minds can, can um, relegate it below the New Testament. We have something new. Why do I want something old? Well, um, the New Testament doesn't mention the Old Testament. The New Testament just calls it the Scriptures. Jesus had a Bible and We call that Bible the Old Testament. So now I like to say I have a master's degree in Jesus' Bible. And it conjures up different thoughts. Sounds a little more, oh, okay, you know. So um, what I want to explore with you um, as we move forward, as any time that I come up here for the foreseeable future, My plan is to share how the New Testament uses 
the Old Testament? How is the Old Testament used in the New Testament by the authors? It was, it was just their scriptures. It was their Bible. And we're going to see that the New Testament authors used their Bible to explain and make a case for and describe and to tell stories about all about Jesus and who he is and what he has done. Everything that Jesus does and did and is is in reference to the Old Testament in the New Testament. So if we are a New Testament people who only mainly live and interact and work in the New Testament, um, we're going we're gonna to be a deficient New Testament people because the New Testament is constantly referring to the Old Testament. Not just every now and then, but almost every single paragraph in the New Testament is in reference to the Old Testament. Jesus does what he does and says what he says, often because of what is written in the Old Testament. When Jesus calms the storm and the waves dissipate, an Old Testament reader knows the, the psalms that say that Yahweh has the power to calm the storms and the seas. And instantly, we recognize, who is this in the front of our boat? Is this Yahweh himself? Only Yahweh can do these things. Only God can do these things. Which we hear often about Jesus' ministry. How do they know only God can do these things? Because they're reading their Bibles. And so my hope is that as we come together and explore the New Testament's use of the Old Testament, that we ourselves will start to experience the depth and the beauty of what the New Testament authors are revealing to us. So I'm going to come behind John as he's taking us through Matthew, I'm going to come behind and start looking more closely at how Matthew in particular is using his Bible to tell us who Jesus is. The New Testament expects us to know the Old Testament. It supposes that we know the Old Testament. So I think it will be helpful for us. I think we may see new things and a new depth, new riches as we do this. So I thought, what better place to start than Matthew 1.1, the first sentence of the New Testament. The first thing that Matthew wants you to know. Imagine that you were, going, you were a disciple of Jesus and you're going to write something that's going to be used for, by billions of people for thousands of years in all the nations. What do I want to say first? What's the first thing I should say about Jesus? And what he says is that he's the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew 1.1. I think this is a summary of what Matthew wants us to know about Jesus. I believe that Matthew is preaching the gospel in the first sentence of the Bible. I think the first sentence of the Bible is a summary of the gospel. 
the good news about Jesus. Whatever Matthew is going to say after this verse needs to be read in light of this opening statement. Whatever Jesus is going to do and say and whatever is going to happen to him in the rest of Matthew needs to be seen in light of the fact that he is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And what Matthew says and what he has to say about Jesus is completely reliant on knowledge of the Old Testament. Well, who is David? Who is Abraham? What is Christ? What is this? What are you saying? It requires us to dig in to the story of the Old Testament. So let's take these three things. I think it's really he's saying that Jesus is the Christ. Who's the Christ? The Christ is the son of David, the son of Abraham. So I think they all fold into the Christ. But let me, let me say this. The Christ is a royal title. It's not a last name. It's not a personal name. It is a title. Sometimes we lose this because our English translations don't always put in the definite article, the. So in the Greek, it'll say the Christ. But often in English, we'll just say Christ, Jesus Christ. Christ said this, Christ did that, praise Christ. And we'll, we'll start, we use it often as a personal name for Jesus or maybe his last name or something that, is, it, that we treat Christ as though it's equal to Jesus. But it's not. It's a title. There's a difference between the teacher versus Kenneth. The teacher can be applied in a different way. So what he's so the Christ as a royal title. In the Old Testament, we, we know you probably have heard that the Christ is a um, it's it's the Greek translation or the Greek version of the Messiah the Mashiach in Hebrew. And the Messiah is someone who is anointed. It's an anointed king. And the prophets tell us of an anointed king who's coming. Well, what can we learn about this anointed king? What do we need to know about this king? So he unpacks it for us and says, he's the son of David. David is mentioned about 60 times in the New Testament. Why does it matter that Jesus is David's son? Have you ever wondered? Well, in our reading this morning, we looked at the covenant to David, the covenant that God made with David. And in that covenant, God promised that one of David's descendants would be an everlasting king who would exercise all authority that God himself would establish David's descendant's throne forever and ever. Have you ever considered Jesus' Davidic kingship, the fact that Jesus is in the son, is, is in the line, a descendant of David, as part of the gospel? We've heard the gospel before. 
We've said the gospel before. We've seen tracts before. Have you ever read anything about David in that? Have you ever heard anything about David? Listen to this. Paul tells Timothy, Remember Jesus the Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David according to my gospel. Interesting. Paul's gospel highlights the Davidic kingship of Jesus. In Romans 1, 1 through 4, Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised previously through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, the Old Testament, concerning his son who was born a descendant of David. That's twice now that Paul has referenced David in his gospel summary. The final thing that Jesus says about himself in the entire Bible, at the end of the book of Revelation, in the last chapter, in the last verses, this is what Jesus says. I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify to you about these things, the things in the book of Revelation, for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The last thing Jesus says about himself is that he's a descendant of David. Jesus is the everlasting king. His throne has been established forever and ever. The first thing that Matthew wants you to know about Jesus, the primary thing that Matthew wants you to know about Jesus is that he is the heir to the promise of the Davidic covenant. That he has all authority. That he is the king of the cosmos. Right there on sentence one of the New Testament. All this literature, all this scripture that the prophets produced speak of the root of Jesse. The son of David, he's coming. Ezekiel talks about it. Isaiah talks about it. Jeremiah talks about it. Hosea talks about it. Amos talks about it. Everyone is talking about this son of David who's coming. A kingdom is coming. A king is coming. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth in the gospel of Mark. Mark 1, 15. He says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus is preaching the gospel before he's died and raised, before he's ascended to his throne. Jesus is preaching the gospel. The gospel is Jesus has come as king and the kingdom of God is arriving right now. In Matthew, Jesus comes out of the wilderness having been tempted by, the serp- by Satan. And the first thing he says out of the wilderness, people are coming around him, they're being healed. Um, he's, he's casting out demons. He's exercising authority over element, the, the, the spiritual elements and the physical elements. And he says, repent. Because the kingdom of heaven is near. 
That's Jesus' message. He talks about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven more than anything else in his ministry. The Pilate says, are you a king? And he says, yeah, you're, you're right when you say that. So the kingship of Jesus is fronted as a primary reality to his identity. He is the king that the prophets foretold. He is going to rule over God's people forever and ever. The good news of Jesus is the first thing Matthew wants you to know about Jesus And that good news is that he is a king, an everlasting king. And then he says, he's a son of Abraham. Okay, so the Christ is a royal title. The son of David uh, indicates that he's the everlasting king that God promised would come. But he's the son of Abraham. Well, why does it matter that Jesus is the son of Abraham? How does Abraham fit into this paradigm? into this gospel. What's good news about Jesus being the son of Abraham? Well, we have to recall the foundational story of the Bible found in Genesis 1 through 11. We went through that this summer at chapter and verse. Some of you guys, um, we went through that together. And here's what it is. Here's the foundational story of the Bible. Here's the first thing the Bible wants you to know about God and about human beings and about the state of the earth that we live in. In the beginning, God made a place and he made a people. And he put that place, those people in that place, and he himself dwelled in the midst of those people. That's what God created. That's what God wanted. That's what God's doing in in creating heaven and earth. His space and man's space overlap and interlock. That's how it's supposed to work. That's how humans flourish. But we know the story. This is one of the Old Testament stories we all know. There was a snake and a tree and a fruit and the fall. And what happened with the fall? They were exiled out of that. They were exiled out of living and flourishing in the presence of God. And Genesis 4 through 11 is humanity stumbling and tumbling down the mountain of God into a dry, dusty desert land filled with death. It just gets, it, it just gets worse. Oh, there, there's, oh, they eat a fruit. They kill their brother. There's Lamech who kills more than Cain. There's everybody's wicked we're wiping it out, flood. Then Noah comes and he messes it up in the garden, or in, in, in a garden, in a, in a vineyard. And then his descendants all finally come together and try to build a rival mountain of God. Well, we're going to put ourselves and our name up into the heavens. This prideful project called the Tower of Babel that all humanity is participating in. That's the story of Genesis 4 through 11. And God says, I'm not, I'm not going to have this. And what he does is he confuses them in their language and he scatters them throughout the earth. 
And so when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, oh man, I would love to be there. Yes, I want this. I want to be living in the presence of God forever and ever in a place, a lush land flourishing with my pet lions. And no, in just several, a few chapters, we're dispersed across the land, cursed, confused, in a land that makes us struggle. And we're not enjoying the benefits of the presence of God. So good thing the Bible doesn't end there. Genesis 12, the next chapter, part of our reading this morning. God calls a man named Abram, who he renames Abraham. And he says, in you, I'm going to turn, I'm going to make this whole thing right. Through one of your descendants, through your descendants, I'm going to make all of this right. And I'm going to bless all the nations, all the families of the earth. I'm going to bless and bring into my presence for blessing. I'm going to bring humanity back up the mountain. That's what he's going to do through Abraham. That's the promise. And so we keep reading. And the whole Old Testament story is, how is this going to happen? How is Genesis 11, 4 through 11, 3 through 11 going to be reversed? How are we going to get back into the presence of God? So we track with this one guy and we're following his descendants. And it's often not a good story, like not happy, you're not like hopeful. You're like, wow, these people are messing it up for all of us. But they're just like us. That's the thing. So what is, what is Matthew saying when he says that Jesus is the son of Abraham? He's saying that in Jesus, all the families of the earth, all the nations, will once again have access to God's presence in him. So Jesus is the Christ. And this is, this is Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus is the Christ, the king. He's an everlasting king who Yahweh has established, and this king is bringing in the families of the earth into God's presence again. That is the gospel. That is the good news. That is happening. These are not promises that were waiting to be fulfilled. Jesus says, everything you learned in the Old Testament, I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it, he says in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. When we know the promises to David and the promises to Abraham, we see the depth and beauty of who Jesus is. So now when we go through Matthew and we're reading about his life and his death, this is the king. This is the forever king who is established by God who's bringing the families of the earth in forever, or the families of the, nation, the nations of the earth in forever. He is being killed. He's rising from the dead. He's conquering death as a conquering king and making a way for God's people from all nations, from all the families of the earth to come into God's presence. 
the gospel is that Jesus is the everlasting king, an all-powerful king who will lead the nations, all the families of the earth, back into God's presence for blessing. To be in his kingdom is to be blessed in his presence. So what does this mean for us? It's almost obvious. Well, it's good to know that the word for believe in Greek, pistis, is actually better translated and understood as allegiance when used in reference to our response to the kingship of Jesus. So when Jesus says, repent and believe, the kingdom of God is near. This is the gospel. The kingdom of God is arriving in him. It's not just believe that fact and then carry on. It's stop and pledge your allegiance to this king. What Jesus is calling us to is a spirit-wrought, whole-person, lifelong allegiance to himself. When you know that, and then you go read the Sermon on the Mount, and you read about a righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees, who were only worried about the outward appearance of things. Jesus is saying, no, I want the whole thing. I want the inward as well. And you, and you, you, you read about how Jesus is leading us and guiding us and he's exercising authority over the spiritual world and the physical world. He is compelling us towards allegiance to him. It's not simply, oh yeah, I believe in that. Like I believe there's chairs in this room. Right? It's not even just a trust that Jesus has done something for us. It's a call to action. It's a compelling, but it's a heart compelling. Jesus wants your heart. So the words that come out of your mouth and the actions that you do during each day are a manifestation of allegiance to an everlasting king who has mercifully and graciously brought you into his presence. Kings require allegiance. King Jesus requires loving, loyal obedience in the Spirit. Okay, so I've made the case that Matthew, here's how I'm going to close. I've made the case that Matthew has fronted the, the most important things we need to know about Jesus. He's told us, first sentence, I need you, I need you to know Jesus is the everlasting king who's bringing all the families of the earth back in for blessing, just like the Old Testament said. Jesus is that king. And then what he does is he bookends that same information in the very end of his gospel. At the very end of his gospel, Jesus has died. He has been raised from the dead. He is about to ascend to his throne in heaven at the right hand of God, the right hand of the Father. And he says, what does he say? We all know it. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He's 
He's announcing his kingship once again. So, I want you to go make disciples. I want you to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded. I want you to make disciples of all the nations. So here we have David and we have Abraham. We have the first sentence of Matthew spelled out in a practical application in the last paragraph of Matthew. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. He is calling all the nations into obedience to everything that he has commanded. And he is baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He's drawing them up. And he will be with us always, forever, to the end of the age. How does he do that? He does it through disciples who make disciples. Who make disciples. He does it through people who have pledged allegiance to King Jesus in love and by the power of the Spirit. And those who know God make him known. That isn't ever not true. Those who know God make him known. We are called. We are Christians. We are in this family of God because of disciples who have come along the way and given us this good news. That will continue in the power of the Spirit as we who are pledging allegiance to King Jesus and lovingly obeying him take this message out into the world. We are to have spirit-wrought, whole-person, lifelong allegiance to King Jesus. Where you find people like that, you will taste the kingdom of God and know that it is good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for being faithful to your covenant promises. That we, from this vantage point, get to look back and see your faithfulness to these promises. Father, I pray that your spirit would fill us and fill this room. That you would produce in us a whole person, lifelong allegiance to the most loving king who's ever been and whoever will be. Merciful Father, thank you. I pray that we would take this good news of your royal son who's saving the world. I pray that we would take it out into our workplaces in, on, at our kitchen table in our families, on, in phone calls. I pray that we would be eager to take this message to the nations, to Polly's Island, to South Carolina, to America, and beyond. I pray this for Jesus' name's sake. Amen. Thank you.